Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of the Horse. Tonight's discussion is titled Equine Essentials, the Importance of Vitamin E, and it's sponsored by Kentucky Performance Products, makers of Elevate Natural Vitamin E. Few horses are lucky enough to have constant year-round access to fresh green grass, which provides the best natural source of vitamin E. This powerful antioxidant supports muscles and nerve health. Is your horse getting enough? Mine here in the desert probably aren't. To help answer these questions, we are joined by Dr. Carrie Fino, who is a researcher at University of California, Davis. Well, welcome, Dr. Fino. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, Dr. Fino, vitamin, well, before we jump in um, to our questions, I want to ask you about your interest in vitamin E deficiency. It's a very specific area of expertise. Uh, can you tell us about your background and how you got involved in the subject? Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually during my residency at UC Davis, I graduated from vet school at Minnesota and then went on to UC Davis in California um, to do a residency in internal medicine. And during that time, we were actually presented with some cases that ended up having equine neuroaxonal dystrophy. So that's a neurologic disease we'll talk about that's related both to a genetic predisposition, but also to an underlying vitamin E deficiency, specifically in the first few years of life. And so that disease has been around, it's been reported since the late 70s, and yet no one really knows why it happens or how it happens or what the genetic predisposition is. So it was just very intriguing to me, and I was already interested in going into research so that actually propelled me into doing my PhD, looking to find the genetic mutation, kind of naively thinking I'd figure it out in four years. Um, we're still working on it, but it really broadened my interest in vitamin E across species. So yes, very specific topic, but it was really seeing the horses in the specific cases that, that brought me to it. Well, before we start our questions from the audience, I wanna give everyone a, a quick review of what to expect for the next hour. Our Ask, Live, uh, Ask the Horse live format starts with questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have questions that you'd like to ask live or would like clarification on one of Dr. Finno's responses, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you. We're gonna do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible during the hour. If you're listening to our archive or podcast and are interested in joining us during the live event so that you can interact with our panelists, you can register to receive our announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get started. So Dr. Finno, first off, why is vitamin E important? There's so many things that our horses need. Why this specific vitamin? So if we think about fat-soluble vitamins in general, we've got A, D, E, and K. Those are the four fat-soluble vitamins. And vitamin E is actually the most potent antioxidant. So out of the four vitamins that we all need that are fat-soluble, that's the one that really is a potent antioxidant. And interestingly enough, when really any animal or people don't get enough of it, then you have this deficit, right? So you have this loss of that antioxidant function. And for some reason, and we don't quite know why, but it specifically targets the neuromuscular system. So both the neurologic, but also the muscular system, um, especially during early development across species, but also with aging. And then I think the other really unique feature of vitamin E that's been looked at a lot more in humans than it has in horses is that it plays a role in healthy reproductive function. So it was actually discovered in 1922 because vitamin E deficient rats couldn't have pups and that was how the vitamin was identified and it was thought to be this kind of fertility vitamin. Um, so it does play a role in reproductive function and then really the last role that hasn't been studied quite as much and doesn't have as much data behind it is its role in immune function. So normal vitamin E status would be able to sustain healthy immune function. So really those three aspects, neuromuscular, reproductive, and immune function. So you, you mentioned it being an antioxidant, and I know, like I think of antioxidants, what I know is from the commercials for uh, skin creams, you know, to, to help <laughs> with my anti-aging uh, wrinkle cream. So can you explain to our audience a little bit about what what an antioxidant is and, and why it's important in, in cell health? 
Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such a term we throw around all the time, right? Like you said, it's for face creams or for supplements, and it's a very broad term. So effectively, what it means is, you know, as we go about through our lives, whether, you know, you're just going out in the sun, there's oxidative damage, certain foods you eat, there may be oxidative damage as you age, unfortunately, there's oxidative damage. And what that means is just that lipoproteins or kind of fat and proteins in your body get damaged over time, usually from environmental factors, also sometimes from genetic factors. And so to actually have this balanced antioxidant system, which isn't just vitamin E, it includes vitamin E, vitamin C is in there, um, selenium is in there. There's kind of a whole gambit of antioxidants that really help combat that damage. And it's a fine balance. You know, you don't you don't want to push it where everybody's drowning in antioxidants. Actually, a little bit of oxidant damage is a healthy thing, but it needs to just be balanced. So that's where vitamin E really comes in. So we have a question from Ellis in Florida, and Ellis wants to know, what are the clinical signs of low vitamin E in an adult horse? So the really interesting thing about vitamin E deficiency is that you could have a horse that if you measured its blood vitamin E level is deficient and has been deficient for years, and maybe you don't see any clinical signs. Um, Maybe the horse maybe it's not as shiny as it could be, but nothing as far as neuromuscular disease or lack of uh, healthy reproductive function. So that's a possibility. Um, The cases we tend to see, it really depends on where they are in their lifespan that they're deficient and what their underlying genetics is. So we have kind of two ends of the spectrum. We have young horses that in the first two to three years of life, if they have that specific genetic predisposition that to date I haven't figured out but won't stop trying, um, and they're vitamin E deficient, they can develop that disease we talked about, equine neuroaxonal dystrophy. It's also been called equine degenerative myeloencephalopathy. And we love acronyms in vet med, so I'll, I'll refer to it as NAD or EDM, not to be confused with EPM, right, which is the protozoal myeloencephalitis. So that one's the young horse disease. Young horses, vitamin E deficient, Um, typically foals that weren't raised on pasture and their pregnant mares weren't raised on pasture. Then we have middle-aged horses that are performing um, and maybe aren't getting as much vitamin E as they should. And these horses can have kind of a subtle loss of performance. You may or may not see some muscle atrophy. Sometimes they kind of come as these cryptic lamenesses, you know, or they lame on this leg today, this leg this day. They don't feel right under saddle. You know, riders will say that they they kind of start out strong, but they lose their energy and it, and it changes with time. They seem to get worse as they become more deficient. So those horses have specific problems in their muscle from the vitamin E deficiency. And we, we don't know if that's genetic or not, but it's, it's definitely one of those things that's reversible with supplementation. So we call that vitamin E deficient myopathy or VEM because we love our acronyms. So that's the middle-aged one. And then older horses, if they're deficient for a long time, and some of us, you know, there may be some thought that that VEM can progress if those horses are kept deficient to a disease that looks a lot, unfortunately, like Lou Gehrig's disease in people um, or ALS, which is where they have this trembling and this muscle loss. They want to lay down all the time. It's a really awful disease to see. And that's called equine motor neuron disease or EMND. So there's lots of E's and D's all throughout, um, but it's definitely, it's, it's really intriguing to me that vitamin E deficiency, depending on where a horse is in its lifespan, can lead to different signs. So can you touch on the genetic portion of this a little bit? I know in the questions coming up, we have a lot about specific vitamin E needs and what it looks like to be deficient and how to help the horses but we don't have a ton of questions about the genetic link. Can you tell us a little bit about what we do know at this point about the genetics of it, which was probably a lecture in itself? (laughs) (laughs) No, it is, but it's, um, so with the the young horse vitamin deficiency that's linked to um, this genetic predisposition, what we know is that there are certain families of horses where you may or may not see any evidence of disease in the dams and the sires, but if the dams are maintained without access to a lot of vitamin E and the foals are born, you know, effectively in a stall and then put out on a dirt lot during the first year of life, they go from being completely normal to developing this kind of incoordination. 
and it progresses. So, you, but yet you can keep a whole nother line of horses under the same conditions and you won't see that in the foals. So you have to have both. You have to have this genetic risk plus the vitamin A deficiency. And as far as the genetics go, we know it's across breeds. So we have studied it the most in quarter horses, but we've seen it in every breed you can imagine. Um, and it does stay in families. And so a lot of times it's breeding farms that we end up working with and trying to help them not only supplement the horses, but actually change their breeding program a bit. You start to be able to pick up certain horses that you feel like are linked to the genetics. And we have invested a lot of time um, and funding in looking into the genetics behind it. And, you know, we have some definite leads. And I think the, um, the encouraging thing is that, you know, in people, there's a disease called ataxia with vitamin E deficiency. And that's due to genetic mutations in a gene that transports vitamin E. So children with mutations in that gene can't, they can absorb vitamin E, but they can't transport it. And they actually have pretty much the same disease we see in those young horses. The kids are normal at birth. And then by the time typically they're teenagers, they get incoordinated, they're often wheelchair bound, um, and they may get some lesions in the back of their eye. And so we looked at that gene in horses, and that's not it, but there's a lot of genes involved in vitamin E transport. So um, we're still digging through them. Yeah. So you mentioned helping identify horses and breeding programs that might have it. Do you do that based on their their pedigree and and their gen genetics, or did you actually mean that there's a look to the horse that there's a, I I think the word would be a phenotype associated with with the horses that are deficient, or is it just the horses deficient so they have the clinical signs? So we pretty much take the foals that we see the signs in. And unfortunately right now, because there's no um, anti-mortem or, you know, without euthanizing a horse, there's no way to diagnose that disease right now without a genetic test. So we kind of have to exclude everything else because they look like wobblers, you know, compressive myelopathy cases, they look exactly like a wobbler. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have to take neck x-rays, you need to rule out EPM, right? The protozoal disease. Um, and then you're kind of left with NAD EDM. And if they have a low vitamin E, that supports it, but that's not a slam dunk. So um, you're just a little bit kind of in this stage of, well, what do I do? I can't ride this horse. I can't breed this horse. Um, and so if the horse is severely affected enough, you know, that the people do decide to euthanize them, we can get an answer at necropsy and looking at the spinal cord and the brainstem. And then what we do is we go back and we say, okay, you know, who are the parents? Tell us um, other foals, you know, by this sire out of the stand. It looks to be dominant. So I think it would just be one parent would actually need to be implicated, which also makes it harder to figure out. Mm -hmm. And then try to just target breeding right in a different direction. Um, and we don't, I, I get asked a lot, like, well, who are the stallions and who are the mares? And, mm -hmm. you know, without a genetic test, you can't, you can't start releasing names of horses. It actually yeah. opens you up to write a full lawsuit. Um, and it's, and it's not the right thing to do, right? We have no way to test those horses to actually prove that. So um, even if we do, when we do develop a genetic test, you know, it'll be more, I think, in the hands of owners to go ahead and start testing a little bit like has been done for other diseases. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a question from Janet in California who is asking, what's the difference between the two types of vitamin E? So Janet knows more than I do because she knows there are two types. So can you tell us what the two types are? And, and that's because Janet's in California. <laughs> We're very deficient here. So, good question, Janet. So, um, this is this is the thing where every I hope everyone on this call is going to learn how to read the fine print on their vitamin E labels. So, there are two different formulations. There's actually three. Let's complicate it more. But for the most part, there's two. So, there's natural, quote unquote, natural vitamin E, which by its name, of course, has to be better, right? And then there's synthetic, which um, would not be as good and, and sounds as such. The problem is, is that supplements won't label themselves as synthetic. Uh, it just doesn't have a great connotation. So you actually really need to read the ingredients, which are always in that, you know, uh, microscopic font on the back and look to see what it says. So vitamin E is actually a term that describes eight different products. So there's these four tocopherols and four tocotrienols. But the only one that we really care about and we're really talking about and we really supplement is alpha tocopherol. So if you look at the back of the supplement, it's going to say on the back, alpha, probably the Greek symbol, and then tocopherol. And then what it's going to say in front of alpha is either 
D, and then D would be just the natural formulation. So it's referring to a specific kind of configuration in the chemistry. So D, alpha tocopherol, is the natural formulation. The other letters you might see instead of D would be RRR, alpha tocopherol. So that's natural. So I'm going to tell you that any supplement that has that product in it is going to say natural all along the front in capital letters. So you might not have to read the small print. Now the synthetic ones won't say natural on them, or if they do, they're incorrectly labeled. But if you read the small font again, instead of D, it's going to say either D and then L, as in llama, so DL, alpha tocopherol, which means it has both the D isoform and the L isoform, or it'll say ALRAC, A-L-L-R-A-C, which means it has all the racemic forms. Both of those are considered synthetic, and they're considered synthetic because only the D formulation can actually gets transported to the rest of the body and is selected specifically in the liver. And in the horse in particular, um, they really do a much better job absorbing and transporting the natural form of vitamin E. So when you're checking your labels, that's really what you want to see is that D alpha tocopherol. And then as I alluded to, <clears throat> excuse me, at the beginning, there's kind of this quote unquote third form. So we're talking about those as a powder or pellet. Um, which means that they have acetate added to them. So when you look at the back of a natural powder or pellet supplement, it will say D-alpha-tocopherol acetate. And that just the acetate is just to stabilize it into a powder pellet form. Because alpha-tocopherol ends in O-L, so it's an alcohol. So it's actually a liquid. And so that's where we get to those natural micellized products that are liquids. So the examples, you know, Elevate WS, Nano E, um, Stewart's product, those are all micellized natural vitamin E. And those have been shown to be absorbed um, at much higher rates and actually transported into the nervous system in particular uh, much more rapidly than even the natural powder pellet. So it really depends on, number one, how deficient is your horse? Number two, does your horse have clinical signs of deficiency? So are there signs of neuromuscular disease? And if there are, that's the kind of horse I would reach for that liquid supplement because I want to get their levels up quickly. I want to get it into the muscle and I want to get into the nervous system. If my horse is deficient but looks okay, you know, he or she's standing there looking great, performing fine, you can get away with a natural product that is the acetate, you know, that is the powder or pellet because it'll take eight to 10 weeks to get their levels up but it's okay, you've got that time and you can do that and it'll stay stable. I really don't push the synthetic formulation for anyone. Um, it, you have to, the dosing is a bit different. You know, you need almost, I would say even more than two times sometimes the dose to get horses levels up. So for me, the money's better invested in one of the natural products, either the liquid or the powder pellet. We have a question from Jennifer, who's also in California, and she says that she prefers to feed her horses whole foods as much as possible. What are good whole food sources of vitamin E for horses? So in people, the main uh, sources of vitamin E are the vegetable oils, so wheat germ, corn, and sunflower oils, um, and then uh, almonds, you know, nuts and things like that. So getting horses to eat. Almonds might be a little tricky. Maybe there's some out there. Expensive. <laughs> it, it does sound expensive. You're exactly right. And then the, you know, the vegetable oils can be tough um, because, you know, there's also corn oil can have some pro-inflammatory uh, mediators in there too. And horses don't really love to have their food doused in vegetable oil. So um, I do think that the, you know, the natural vitamin E products that are out there are are definitely, I would consider, they're formulated for horses, you know, they're really appropriate for getting their levels up and they've been actually shown to do that effectively. So I would kind of stick with that in the horses. And then for myself, I, I eat as many almonds as I can afford. So <laughs> keep my levels up. <laughs> we have a question from our live audience. It looks like Dr. Reed is with us and he wants to know with a condition like EDM, what role does vitamin E play and can feeding it correct or at least stabilize the disease in the horse. Dr. Reed, it's so good to have you on, sir. I know it's later on the East Coast there. So um, that's a great question. So 
vitamin E, what we think, if, if the genetic mutation is associated with vitamin E transport, which would make the most sense, right, that foals that have that mutation can't transport it as well, you actually need to give them more. Um, and that's the same thing in children with ataxia with vitamin E deficiency. You actually supplement those children with very, very high doses of vitamin E, higher than you would anyone else, and you can stabilize the disease. Now, in horses, we can, they seem to stabilize regardless by the time they get to typically about two to three years of age, but you can prevent it. So even without a genetic test, if I know that that cross, that mare and that sire last year produced an affected foal, and that mare had already been bred back to that sire by the time I figured that out, what I'm going to do this year is I'm going to supplement that mare while she's pregnant, uh, typically in the last three months of gestation, with, with a high dose of the liquid vitamin E. So I'm going to give her 5,000 units a day of that liquid vitamin E we talked about, the natural vitamin E, or keep her on pasture if I'm not in California and I can. And then I'm going to check her blood level before she folds. So a week or two before she folds, I'm going to see where her blood level is and hope that it's high. And if it's not where I want it, I'm going to supplement her more. Because the mares concentrated in their colostrum. It does not cross the placenta, but they concentrated in their colostrum. And so as long as that foal gets up, nurses, gets its colostrum and all of its antibodies, it's also getting all of its vitamin E. And then I'm going to keep that foal on vitamin E itself every day with a little syringe um, until probably it's a year of age or so, or I can get the foal on pasture and check levels throughout. And I've done that for quite a few farms now. And now without a genetic test, you never know, right? Was that foal 100% going to get the disease or not? But I can tell you that it does seem to get rid of having affected foals. So you can still do some of the same breedings you want. You just have to manage the vitamin E really tightly. Um, and the foals actually, I always joke that they know they need it. You know, they actually will come up to the fence. Um, we have some at our center here and they'll put their head between the bars and we can just syringe the vitamin E in their mouth. So, I mean, you'll see them try to get past her, right? When they're a few days old and completely, they look ridiculous, you know, almost buckling their knees down. They, they know they need it. I mean, they're programmed to know they need vitamin E and they get it from pasture. So um, syringing them once a day, it's hard for a big breeding operation, absolutely. But if you've got those certain susceptible foals, it's worth investing in. We have a question from Cynthia, who's also in California. You guys have done a good job of educating the Californians. <laughs> Go California. UC, yeah, UC Davis there. Um, so Cynthia wants to know, can a horse have too much vitamin E? And if so, oh, are there any risks? Yeah, you guys are nailing all the really good questions. So, um, yes. And I think this is... This is a little bit the trouble we get into, right? Is if, if a little bit's good, maybe a lot's better. Um, and remember, this is a fat-soluble vitamin. So unlike the water-soluble vitamins, which are B and C, which if you take too much, you just urinate out, vitamin E accumulates in the body. So it is one of the safer vitamins. Um, it's been shown that you can get pretty high doses without any consequences. But I think because we have these formulations now that are so effective at getting horses levels up, we need to be really careful because if they do get too much vitamin E, it actually interferes with vitamin K metabolism, and that's the one that helps you clot. So you could actually set a horse up for bleeding disorder if you have their vitamin E too high. And I've anecdotally now had a few cases that vets have called me about um, where the horse has been on that liquid natural vitamin E high dose for a while. They haven't checked the level in a while. Um, and it has had some, you know, bleeding from the nose and things like that, that they can't figure out from any other cause. So we stopped the vitamin E supplementation and it actually goes away. But I always say if you can check levels, it's so much more cost effective to do it that way than to just, you know, kind of assume what the horse needs as far as a supplement, because too much is, is just as damaging as too little. We have a question from Catherine in Arizona, and she wants to know what is the best way to test for vitamin E deficiency, and what is the average cost for the test, if, if you know that? Yeah, so a blood test, um, and it's this isn't, you know, even in human medicine, this isn't something that's routinely screened for. So if you get a regular blood work on your horse, which would be a complete blood count of serum chemistry, we actually don't measure vitamins on that. So it's a specific test you need to request itself, but it's just a blood sample. So your vet can come out and take that. Um, and there's a few different labs that'll run that. 
the average cost, you know, depending on the vet clinic, probably somewhere in the $40 to $60 range for a sample. So if you think about how much money we all spend in supplements, um, <laughs> I, I would argue that checking levels, you know, once a year, twice a year, um, especially if you don't have pasture and you're directly supplementing, it's not a bad idea. I actually had someone ask me at a meeting, they said, you know, should I do this every year I do a Coggins? Should I just check it? And I said, well, it's actually not a bad idea. Um, you know, you take serum for Coggins, you take the same sample for vitamin E. So I do it on my own horses. I mean, I live in California. They don't have any pasture. You know, I supplement them and I'm checking them every six months. And, and sometimes I need to change the dosing. Um, and that's the only way to know. So if you test your horse for it and they're fine for that test? I stay the course. Do you need to do it again in the future? Do you need to keep testing annually? Or can you go, ah, my horse is fine. One less thing to worry about. Yeah, I mean, if honestly, if, if the horses, I've tested mine now. It's always good when you have your own horses as your own research samples. So I test mine probably every six months and their supplementation has been pretty constant. And it's interesting because they do fluctuate a little bit, but they've stayed within the range. So I probably could go to once a year, you know what I mean? Or even every two years, if I didn't change anything, I just, when you study this, right, you're paranoid about everything. So I think I probably check them more than most people, but if they're stable, you can. Um, I think the other really important point though, is that, you know, I own two horses and they need a different dose on their supplements. The same supplement dose doesn't work for both of them. So the individual variation is tremendous. I mean, even in our studies that we've done here, I'll have some horses that you give them just a little bit and their levels go way up. And then another horse that's going to take three times that dose. And the same thing's true in people. There's all these genetic, you know, changes that account for how well you absorb and transport vitamins. And I think the same is true in horses. So it has to be individual, which can make it really tough on big farms. And I understand that. Um, sometimes you can just get a random sample and see what it looks like if you have a widespread deficiency. But if you own individual horses, I would say it's, it's worth it to do each one. Okay. Uh, Dr. Claire Tunes is in the audience. Hi, Claire. She's one of our regular contributors at The Horse. I know her well. Hi, Dr. Tunes. <laughs> she has a question for you. She uh, says, while most horses are deficient, can you speak to how much vitamin E is too much and how it can lead uh, to, let's see, and what it can lead to in the horse. And I think we have touched on that, Claire. I think that we answered your question after you asked it. Um, but Dr. Finau, do you have anything to add? Uh, well, just the, the levels a little bit. So um, when you're running these blood tests, it'll come back from the lab and depending on the units they use, it's usually in micrograms per mil. And so what we say is normal is generally anything greater than or equal to two micrograms per mil in the blood. That being said, I will tell you that sampling horses that are actually grazing, and by grazing I mean they're actually out for at least 12 hours a day on fresh pasture, that's green, um, for at least six months out of the year. So, you know, not an hour a day kind of thing. So horses that are grazing have really stable concentrations somewhere usually within the three all the way up to seven microgram per mil range in their blood. So I target, even though two is considered normal, I actually want my horses to kind of be three to five. That's that's what I aim for. Um, and interestingly enough, I have some horses that have to sit around nine or 10. Um, horses with that specific vitamin E deficient myopathy we talked about. I've got a few at the research center that I got their level back. I'm like, nine, that's too high. I need to bump down on the supplement. And I did. And the signs of disease actually came back in that particular horse. So that horse needs to sit a little bit higher. So I think it's one of those decisions, if you can do it with your vet, especially if your horse has clinical signs of disease, you need to balance the number you're getting on the paper with what the horse looks like, um, especially if it's, you know, you're assuming that the vitamin E deficiency is contributing to the disease. So that's a decision to make with your vet. But those are the numbers I aim for. And then we talked about if it gets too high, you know, you start getting in the 15s and above that that really worries me. Uh, Joyce is in Maine and she wants to know if it's okay to go ahead and su supplement vitamin E without doing the blood test and checking your horse first. So a lot of people do that, right? It's, um, well, my horse isn't on pasture. I'm just going to start supplementing vitamin E. And it, it's not the wrong decision. I would say the only problem that happens is that 
I tend to hear about those horses down the road where, you know, have a vet contact me and say, well, here's the horse's level. It's 1.5 in the blood, and it's been on this vitamin E supplement at this dose for six months. And my next question is, well, what was the number before you put it on the supplement? And then, well, we didn't, we didn't take one. So having a sample before you start supplementation really helps you figure out, is your plan even working? Um, and that's not to say if your horses are on vitamin E, you should take them off and see where they're at. But I mean, just see where they're at now, because it, it really kind of it dictates the entire protocol in my mind. You know, we said not all supplements are created equally. The dosing is going to depend on the type of supplement and also what the horse looks like. You know, it's really individualized. I mean, it's one of these, I think it's a great example of personalized medicine, right? We can't just write a prescription that's going to fit every horse. So having that number is really helpful. We have a question from Talisa in Texas, and she wants to know if you have to balance vitamin E with selenium. So what's the relationship between vitamin E and selenium, or is there any? There is, and I think they've been they've been married for a really long time. Um, I think it's a I think it's a pretty pretty happy marriage for the most part, and that every individual needs both. So they're both antioxidants. They definitely work together, but um, I do think we need to start thinking of them a little bit separately because you can have areas of the country that are selenium deficient, but the horses have enough vitamin E, and vice versa. Um, historically, most horses that are vitamin E deficient were also selenium deficient, so everybody kind of put that together. But I think we've shown more and more now. I mean, in California, a lot of our horses have normal selenium concentrations, but are vitamin E deficient. So I measure them separately. Um, they're they're both blood tests. Selenium is just whole blood, whereas vitamin E is serum. But they're both blood tests, and I supplement them specifically because selenium is one we want to be really, really careful about, right? Because any um, over supplementing of selenium has really dire like consequences. It's um, that's one that needs to be very, very tightly monitored. So if I'm trying to really bump up a horse's vitamin E concentration, I don't want to be pouring selenium into the horse at the same time. And then you know there's the one injection out there, the EC, which is the injectable vitamin E selenium that a lot of us, especially on the West Coast, give to foals when they're born. Uh, and we did a study that showed that it, it is really effective at increasing their selenium concentrations. It does nothing for their vitamin E. And the reason is it's kind of a low dose and it's also the synthetic form. So the vitamin E is in there to buffer the selenium, but it's not actually doing anything for vitamin E. So a lot of times I'll have folks say to me, oh, I gave the full dose of EC. That should be good enough for the vitamin E. And I would say it's not. You actually need to get to an oral vitamin E supplement for that full you did a good job with the selenium, but again, let's think of them separately. We have a question from our live audience. Lynn wants to know how you might know if your pasture is low in vitamin E. Is it that you find your horses are low? Yeah, typically you do. And this is, um, you know, this is where I'm good at the horse side of it. When we start to get into pasture management, I'm definitely no expert, but I would say that you know, looking at your horse constant, if your horses are maintained on pasture, taking blood samples from your horses and seeing where they are is really going to tell you if your pasture is providing enough. You can sample pasture and submit it just like you can sample hay, but it changes so much throughout the year that I think it's going to be more important to see, you know, what's the end effect? I mean, what do we care about at the end? We care about if the horse is deficient or not. So that's really the best way to assess you know, I, I have my horses on pasture. This is my normal management. Am I am I doing you know a good job for their vitamin E concentrations? That's the best way to do it, is test the horses. So Barbara in Ohio wants to know how you would test for vitamin E levels in your feed sources. So should you be testing your hay as well to see if there's vitamin E, or should we expect there to be vitamin E in our hay that we're feeding our horses? So you can, so it's going to be separate than a regular hay analysis, um, and a lot of the labs that test it in samples will also do feed testing. Um, most hay is going to be deficient. So hay, as soon as you, as soon as you cut that grass, that vitamin E starts oxidizing, and it depends on, you know, first cut, last cut, um, depends on how long the hay sits out. If it's in the sun, you can be guaranteed that there's no vitamin E left in that hay. Um, so I would say if you're going to invest your money in testing, I would put it into the horse side of it because 
all the hay that I've tested, at least in all the projects we've done here, um, you know, the hay has been deficient and it's not going to be meeting their nutritional needs that they would require for vitamin E. So it, the money, I think, is better invested in actually testing the horses. We have a question from Sharon in Delaware, and she wants to know how important is vitamin E for senior horses? So we've talked quite a bit about the breeding and, and the, the babies and the mares, but what about your old guys? So I think I think older horses, you know, they have really unique needs. And I do think, I think vitamin E is quite important for them too. So we talked a little bit earlier about the older disease, the equine motor neuron disease, where if you have a horse that, you know, experimentally at Cornell, they've done some nice studies where, you know, if you just keep horses off pasture for 10 to 12 years, they're vitamin E deficient. Um, and some of them went on to develop that motor neuron disease that looks again like Luke Gehrig's disease. So I think it's, it is really important in the aging horse. And if you think about the amount of oxidative damage that's going on with aging, um, you know, it's, it's kind of makes a lot of sense that they should be balanced and again, kind of checking, even if they're not in work, just to see where their concentrations are. So, I mean, I always joke to all the feed companies, if we could just make pasture in a bottle, um, and if someone takes this idea from this, you know, please let me know, I'll be in on the patent with you. But if we could just make pasture in a bottle for horses, um, for those of us that don't have pasture, I, it just makes all the difference in the world because vitamin A is where they get, uh, they get that from pasture as well. We don't see a lot of signs of night blindness in horses, but um, they do, they're often deficient in vitamin A as well. So again, it's one of those things that I think it's important to pay attention to in the senior horses definitely no exception. Uh, Armistead in Virginia says that a friend suggested that she use vitamin E to help prevent rain rot in her horse. Is, is this something that can help with rain rot? So I think the thing about a little bit like we alluded to earlier, right, is that the role of an antioxidant kind of gets extended to having all of these properties. Um, there's no good studies that I'm aware of that vitamin E um, that's been used either topically or ingested to prevent rain rot in horses. Um, I, I think that if we just think about what a deficiency causes, right, it causes neuromuscular disease and potentially decreased reproductive function. Those are the things that it's going to be maintained by keeping concentrations normal. So I don't know of any studies out there. Um, Again, you know, skin, I will say you put horses on vitamin E supplements and they get shiny. Um, so as overall skin health, it'll definitely improve. And whether that has an effect or not, um, it may be, but I don't think anyone's looked at it. Um, we have Sharon in Utah who wants to know if vitamin E has an increased importance in horses that have uh, Cushing's or PPID. So Sharon, that's actually a really interesting question because Cushing's leads to effectively right defects in immune function and vitamin E has been shown at least in rodent models and a little of the work in people to help with immune function, right? So could that actually um, have an effect? And no one's looked at it in the horse. Um, they've, they've looked a little bit at vitamin E supplementation and vaccine efficacy, right? To see if you give it if you could improve the vaccine's ability to provide protection, but no one's looked at it specifically for Cushing's. So again, I think if you know if you have a horse with PPID or Cushing's disease and that horse is deficient, um, that's justification to supplement. And you know, if anything, you're providing maybe some uh, immune boost to that horse. Uh, Gail is in British uh, Columbia, Canada, and she wants to know for horses that don't have access to a pasture such as a racehorse, what would you recommend to maintain a good vitamin E uh, level? Is there a regimen of frequency that you would be supplementing? So um, I think some of the interesting things, especially with racehorses, is a lot of times, uh, the ones I've tested in California are actually some of the most normal vitamin E concentrations I've had in California. And it's because when they're not at the track, they actually do keep them on irrigated pasture here. So that's kind of an aside that I found really interesting. But if you have horses that are, you know, at the track and are not getting that six months um, or even four months of pasture, then a daily vitamin E supplement is the way to go. And again, it's going to depend on that individual horse. Um, as if they're in work and they show no signs of neuromuscular disease and everybody's happy with the way they're performing, 
but you take a blood level and they're deficient, then I would go ahead and put those horses on that natural powder or pellet formulation. So you're not, you don't have to give them the liquid, which, you know, can get messy. And if it's a lot of horses can get a little expensive. If they don't have signs of neuromuscular disease, you can just put them on the powder pellet as long as it's a natural formulation and then recheck their levels. I would probably recheck them in four or six months, um, give them time to go up and make sure you got them to where you want them. And then the other reason I know I harp on checking levels, but the other reason to do that <laughs> is because you're actually going to save money, right? I mean, if they're too high, you can back the dose down and then you save money. So uh, I think there's, you know, there's the biologic reason, but there's also a financial reason to check levels. Um, we have a question from Rhonda in our live audience, and she wants to know if you can feed a human vitamin E supplement to your horses. Yeah, that's a great question. So sometimes the human capsules are actually more cost effective than some of the equine products. I've had some owners tell me that. Um, and you can. So it's the same thing, though. You want to go and read the labels because if you go to Costco or CBS or anywhere and you go and pull the first vitamin E off the shelf that you see, um, chances are it's going to be the synthetic formulation. So if you look on the back, it's going to say either DL alpha tocopherol or all rack, A-L-L rack, alpha tocopherol. Um, so that's, mm, if it even saves you money buying it at Costco, it's going to do nothing for your horse. Um, people, we do a better job with the synthetic products than the horses do. Um, we can absorb them and it's the ratio is about one to two as far as synthetic to natural in people. Horses don't do as good of a job. So there are natural products in people and oftentimes they say plant-based on the outside. They don't say natural, they'll say plant-based. But same thing, turn it around, read the small print, and it should say D, just the letter D by itself, alpha tocopherol. And if that's the case, then you could actually take that, figure out the dosing that you'd want in units, you know, and then uh, unfortunately open up the capsules, which is a little bit of work, but um, sometimes can be cost effective. So I have had some people do that, and I've checked horses' levels, and they have gone up on that. We have a question from our live audience from Meredith. So we've mentioned coat health so far with vitamin E, but she wants to know if it's important for hoof health. It is. So, I, you know, there's no good targeted studies as far as, you know, what effect it has on hoof health, but I think anything related to keratin right in the skin um, is going to have an effect on hooves. And I'm trying to think if on our own horses that we've had um, that we've supplemented, if we've kind of noticed anything. I've definitely noticed the coat shine. Um, I can't say I've noticed or the farriers reported that he, you know, thinks their hooves are better, but it would make sense. There's just no real data out there to support or refute it at this stage. No. So talking about that coat shine, so like I feed my horses a flax supplement because they aren't on pasture. I live in, in the high desert of Oregon and don't have an irrigated pasture. Um, so I've always assumed that their bloom that they get, because they get very shiny this time of year when they've shed their coats um, on their flax, is it the omega-3 fatty acids or is it the vitamin E that they're getting? So it's probably a combination of both. I think the omega-3s for flax are probably really what's giving you the shine. Um, and I have seen, it's, it's interesting, you kind of see similar results. You know, horses really look the same when you put them on the flaxseed or you have them on um, the vitamin E supplement and get them to where they should be. So I think either way, you know, you're kind of targeting that coat shine, but I think you're, you're hitting more of the omega-3s for the flaxseed. We have a follow-up question from our live audience. Uh, Phyllis is asking for a clarification. Did you say two um, milligrams per milliliter? or micrograms per milliliter? For the blood concentration, mm -hmm. it's yes. two micrograms per milliliter. And it'll depend on the lab. I think Cornell reports it in different units. So if you get something that looks a little bit different, don't worry, they'll have their reference range on there. Um, but a lot of the labs will report in kind of that whole number. So two micrograms per mil, ml. Um, we have a a question from Stephanie in our live audience, and she wants to know if she can rely on the vitamin E in her feed if she's feeding it properly. So if you are feeding a concentrate at the minimum requirement or recommendation from the manufacturer, is your horse getting enough vitamin E from that ration? So, you know, I think originally a thought was that, that that would be enough, and a lot of times that's feeding, you know, 
seven to 10 pounds of whatever grain it is to get to the recommended um, content if you look at the NRC requirements. But that being said, um, I have a lot of horses that were getting, you know, that amount of grain and were not, uh, when you measure their serum levels, were not where they should be. So the formulation that's in grain is the synthetic formulation. Um, the natural product is hard to get stabilized enough, um, as far as my understanding goes, talking to feed companies to actually incorporate into a grain. And it's also the acetate product because it has to be stable. So you know, if you're feeding the full amount, um, I, I think, again, the best way to answer it is to just check your horse's level and see where they're at. And if they're good, then you're meeting it and, you know, they're okay. Um, if they're still lower than you'd like, then I think it's worth adding a supplement in. And, and again, you could be feeding that amount of grain to 10 horses and you could have eight that are fine and two that are still deficient, even though if you do the math, right, you're meeting their requirement. Um, it's just biology doesn't always agree with the math, as we all know. We have a question from Susan in Pennsylvania, and she says that her horse was diagnosed by UPenn uh, New Bolton to have PSM type 1. How much nano E should she receive daily? So um, let's back up and talk about PSSM1 and PSSM2 for our audience to understand and then uh, dive into her question. Do you, do you mind taking all that? Sure, sure, no problem. It's a so, big yeah, yeah, polysaccharide storage myopathy. So remember our love for acronyms. So PSSM, um, type one and then type two. So type one is the one that we have identified the genetic mutation for. Um, and so that was done with a group at Minnesota, um, Drs. McHugh and Valberg. And that one you can test for. So a hair sample submitted, you can get a test for. So that's, I think what Susan's asking, her horse was diagnosed with that ostensibly via the genetic test. Um, type 2 PSSM are horses that actually have muscle biopsies typically taken that look like type 1 PSSM. And all PSSM means is polysaccharide is just sugar. So they have a problem storing, they have too much sugar in their muscle. They can't break it down effectively. So when you look at a muscle biopsy, you actually see all of the sugar that can't get broken down. So you'll have a muscle biopsy that looks like that, but you do the genetic test and they're negative for type 1. So there are other genetic mutations that are likely leading to um, what's causing type 2. So that's the PSSM story. And then as far as vitamin E for PSSM, you know, this is, I think, I think sometimes, as, you know, we take a good thing and we extend it a little bit too far. So there's there's no evidence that vitamin E supplementation in and of itself is going to help with clinical signs of type 1 or type 2 PSSM. That being said, I don't want any horse to be deficient, right? Whether it's got type 1 PSSM, type 2, or doesn't have a myopathy. Um, is it good for muscle health? Absolutely. So I think having horse deficient, if it's got an underlying muscle disease, is not a good thing, but there's no evidence that that vitamin E is going to directly improve the clinical signs of type 1 or type 2 PSSM. So again, I kind of think of it as, okay, my horse has this, you know, genetic inherited myopathy. I'm going to do the recommended um, feed changes, which are, you know, you decrease high structural carbohydrates, you feed more fat, and then a regular exercise program. Those have been the, the two biggest things, especially when used together, that improve clinical signs of type 1 PSSM. Now, if that horse is also deficient in vitamin E because you took a blood level and it was less than two, then yes, I would supplement that horse. And is it going to make a big difference? Maybe, maybe not, but you're definitely getting their level back. Um, and just kind of while we're on the theme of muscle, uh, we did do a study last year with Dr. Valberg, who's at Michigan State, where you know we have um, a group of horses here in California that, that live in a dry lot, um, because that's what we have, and none of them have clinical signs of vitamin deficiency. They're actually um, sometimes a little too well-kept, but they've got, they've got <laughs> musculature, they're symmetric, they're a little fat, um, you know, they don't exercise, they're teaching horses. And, you know, our question was, well, okay, all of these horses are vitamin deficient, nobody's showing any signs, can we look at their muscle and see what's going on? And so we just took the routine muscle biopsies on these horses and even horses with no signs, so no atrophy, we don't know if they have exercise intolerance because they don't exercise, but um, no overt signs of disease. When you look at the muscle under the microscope, 
there's actually buildup of lipofusin, which is an oxidized um, lipid protein. So again, evidence of oxidant damage in the muscle that's already started. And so I do think of kind of muscle disease and vitamin E a little bit as a long-term deficiency can be a bit of a ticking time bomb and that you might not see the changes, you might not feel them under saddle yet, but it's something that actually at you know, a very, very high level microscopically, we can see something's going on in the muscle. So I do think, um, you know, I've had a couple people say, well, who cares? You know, they can all be deficient. Maybe we need to lower the reference range because we don't see any signs in 80% of the horses. And I would argue that if you look deeply enough, there may be something there. It just hasn't presented clinically yet. So long answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, we have a related question that's from Jackie in our audience, and she wants to know if the issue of tying up in racehorses um, can benefit from vitamin E. So when we're talking about tying up in general, are we we're talking about PSSM, either type one or type two, right? Um, Typically in, right, well, so in quarter horses and then type two um, and the warm bloods um, and then type one again in the draft. So Yes, in the thoroughbreds, um, they actually are more likely, if they're going to have a chronic, repeated episode of tying up, they're more likely to have recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis with its acronym RER. So in that disease, there's groups still investigating the genetics. Of, we don't have a genetic test for that yet, but there are horses that are more often in fillies, kind of high-strung fillies, that will tie up repeatedly over and over again, um, and they're often thoroughbreds. Uh, also in standard breads as well. So those horses, again, I, I kind of go back to the PSSM1 analogy, right? It's If they're deficient, they should be supplemented. But is the vitamin E deficiency directly leading to the myopathy? It's, it's not likely. Um, I don't think it's helping, but I don't think it's leading to it directly. So there have been quite a lot of studies looking at oxidative damage in muscle with vitamin E deficiency, and I do think that's absolutely um, a true statement it's something that occurs and we need to make sure we keep their concentrations normal but I do think in some of these chronic cases of tying up in thoroughbreds there's more going on than that. Okay. Uh, Dr. Reed is in the audience and he's wondering if you could briefly address the use of vitamin E selenium in foals with dysphagia or maybe a foal with a weak suck or milk from the nose. Uh, he says that the yeah. they, they do that no. on the east coast as well. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up, Dr. Reed. That's something we've uh, we've been noticing here too. So um, you'll get these foals in, and they may look pretty healthy otherwise, but they're you know either having milk come out their nose or they're just having some pharyngeal weakness and swallowing, usually within the first few days of life. And those foals, often when we check them, are deficient um, in vitamin E, sometimes selenium as well but definitely low in vitamin E. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's a very kind of specific set of clinical signs you see in these foals. And so we do supplement them. If they're deficient in selenium, they get a dose we talked about of that EC, an injection of that. And then if they're also deficient in vitamin E, which they usually are, then we'll start them on that oral. We'll use the liquid supplement in those foals because we want to get their levels up really fast. So that liquid the mycelized natural vitamin E, um, in our studies at least, will double their blood concentrations within 12 to 24 hours. So if you want to get their levels up quickly, that's the best way to do it. Um, and so we've done that. And usually within three to four days, you'll actually start to see an improved ability to swallow. Um, and you really worry about, you know, trying to prevent aspiration pneumonia in those foals. You don't want milk going into their lungs. So it's, and we've seen it across breeds. Um, so it does seem to be associated with that early onset deficiency. We have a question from Alicia in our live audience, and she wants to know if you start with a liquid, liquid supplement and then you uh, transition, would like to transition to the powder, how do you make that transition? That is, you can tell her she's hired. That was a trial we actually just did, I think, two or three years ago. So great minds thinking alike there. Um, that was our question. You know, if you can get their levels up on liquid, I don't want to keep doing liquid, you know, forever. It's uh, it's just a lot, lot more work and sometimes a lot messier than the powder pellet. So what we did was we actually started horses on um, 5,000 units a day per horse of the liquid. 
And we did that and then we weaned them down off of that. And as we did that, and this was over eight weeks, we actually increased the powder pellet supplement. Um, and what we found, it was actually Dr. Jenny Brown that did it as part of her residency at Minnesota, is that um, the liquid, of course, their levels went up. As soon as we started decreasing the liquid, their levels actually started to come down, even though we were putting them on the powder pellet. And I think looking back on it, you know, we just hadn't really started high enough. So I think that the powder pellet is going to take, from our studies at least, somewhere in the kind of eight to 10 weeks to get their levels up. It just takes longer, um, whereas the liquid does it pretty fast. So I would say if you can, again, use levels to kind of guide you, get their levels up on the liquid, make sure it's where you want it. And then as you start decreasing the liquid and adding the powder pellet in, if you can, check a level to just see where you're at. Um, because you can do it. And I, I do think it makes a big difference. Again, if your horse doesn't have neuromuscular disease, you don't necessarily have to jump to the liquid. But if you do, and you want to try to get that level up and consistent, that's the best way to do it. Uh, Lori is a nutritionist in Canada, and she said that she gets asked a lot about change in horses' top lines, not necessarily a loss of weight, but just a loss of muscle in easy keepers. Do you have any insight on vitamin E deficiencies in easy keepers who may be dry lotted and getting balancers, but are showing a decrease in top line health? Yeah, Lori, that, that's a great question. I think that's one of the subtle things we start to see with vitamin E deficiency. And um, the vitamin E deficient myopathy cases I was talking about, those kind of middle-aged horses that just have decreased performance, um, that's one of the things you notice is the owners will come in and say, I just can't get I just can't get their top line to look good. You know what I mean? I'm feeding all the right stuff. The horse is in full work, um, but they just have that kind of atrophy along the paxial muscles of the back and sometimes the hindquarters too. And it really makes a difference. I mean, those horses are typically, even if they're not that deficient in their serum, they respond really well to bumping their levels up a little bit higher. And it, it's one of those great things where you can look at them in a few weeks and actually start to see this more kind of rounded profile. So I do think, you know, atrophy is one of those signs that you say, okay, well, let me check a level and see where we're at. And if I have a horse that's affecting their performance, that's one I will put on the liquid just to get them up um, kind of as quickly as I can to see if it makes a difference. I mean, there are a lot of other causes, right, of muscle atrophy, so you want to make sure you're not just going down that road, but um, you do see a pretty rapid response usually within a few weeks. Okay. And we have a question from Julie in our live audience, and she wants to know how long it takes for vitamin E levels to go up after you start supplementation. Is it something that happens pretty quickly, or does it take time to build? So it depends on the product. So if you're using the um, liquid formulation, their levels will double. So say they were at 1.5, they'll be up at three, which is in the normal reference range, typically within 24 hours, but definitely within three to five days of supplementing once a day. If you use the natural powder pellet formulation, um, I wouldn't check their levels again for at least, I would say eight to 12 weeks, somewhere in there, because it takes a while to go up. So it just depends on which product you're using. We have a question from uh, Samia in Maryland, and she says that humans taking vitamin in large doses will have major muscle cramping if they quit the supplementation cold turkey, even for a day. Is it possible that horses experience this as well? Yeah, it's really it's really an interesting phenomenon that people. So. I don't, you know, the doses we get to in horses, um, I mean, some some do get pushed pretty high, but I think we're, we're more often dealing with just trying to get them into the normal range. So I think if you were to push a horse up higher than kind of what we've been talking about, so again, getting their blood levels up to 15 or higher, um, and then you were to stop it for a day, um, I would think you would see similar signs. I haven't actually experienced that, but... Um, it makes sense to me, you know, because they're kind of getting used to this um, overabundance of the product. So most horses we're dealing with, I'm having a hard time getting their levels up to normal. You know, we're kind of tweaking the supplements and trying to get them up to normal. So I haven't seen any cramping in the population we've been working with, but it's a great question. We have a question from Rachel in our live audience, and she said that she sees many riders feeding vitamin E as a performance enhancer. Is there any evidence that it is performance enhancing? 
So if you define, you know, performance enhancing the way they do for kind of racing and a lot of the drug testing methods, um, there's really no evidence that it's going to directly lead to performance enhancement kind of past normal capacity. You know what I mean? I think you're going to probably get a horse, if you get it up to its normal level, it's going to be working at its best, but I don't think you're going to necessarily push it past there if you over supplement it. And again, you run into the risks of bleeding and these other things we talked about. And high doses of vitamin E also interfere with beta carotene metabolism. So you can actually start affecting other vitamins if you get too high. Um, so I, I will say you'll see horses work better, but I think it's kind of what they should have been working at as far as their own top level. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for tonight. The hour went really quickly. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Dr. Finno. We covered a lot of ground in that that hour. We had a ton of questions and a, a large audience. So, so thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, it was great. Thank you guys for having me. And I, I really appreciate all the fantastic questions. So it's a really good interaction. Uh, for everyone who's listening to us live, uh, or if you're listening to the podcast, we hope you can join us next time. We're going to be talking about the forage first diet for horses. Until then, from all of us here at The Horse, have a great night.